0: This is the LexisNexis New York Legal News Podcast. Litigation news stories from New York courts, as reported in recent issues of LexisNexis Mealy's publications. Current and targeted legal news and litigation reports. Mississippi became the first of more than 40 states to suffer a setback in state government Zyprexa litigation on December 1st when the judge overseeing the Zyprexa multi-district litigation granted summary judgment on most of Mississippi's claims and expressed doubts about the viability of the one that survived. Senior U.S. Judge Jack Weinstein of the Eastern District of New York granted summary judgment on most of Mississippi's claims, saying its aggregate
1: proof of wrongdoing is no substitute for individualized proof. In a 117-page opinion, Judge Weinstein said Mississippi's drug pricing claim is similar to that raised by institutional third-party payers. In 2008, he certified a third-party RICO class action and allowed the plaintiffs to rely on aggregate proof rather than individualized proof. In light of the appeal of the third-party RICO class certification, Judge Weinstein reserved summary judgment on Mississippi's claims based on Zyprexis prices until after the Second Circuit rules. Judge Weinstein said, however, that in light of the majority of the Court of Appeals' hostility to the use of aggregate proof, there is some doubt concerning the appellate court's willingness to accept statistical evidence of the kind that is necessary to the success of a third-party payer's claims. The judge said the state's Product Liability Act, Consumer Product Act, Medicaid Fraud Control Act, and common law fraud and negligence claims for the treatment of injuries caused by Zyprexa don't survive summary judgment because they cannot rely on aggregate proof. For LexisNexis Legal News, I'm Mealy's Emerging Drugs and Devices Editor, Tom Moylan. The second
0: of three bellwether trials scheduled in the federal Fosamax multidistrict multi litigation was dismissed on summary judgment on November 23rd after the judge found that two treating physicians were not qualified to testify as causation experts. In 1997, Bessie Flemings, who is now 74, was prescribed Fosamax to treat severe osteoporosis. In 2006, she was diagnosed with osteonecrosis of the jaw. Flemings sued Fosamax manufacturer Merck & Company, and her case was transferred into the Fosamax MDL in the Southern District of New York. Flemings, who has smoked since she was eight, suffers from chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and is on oxygen. She also has congestive heart failure, peripheral vascular disease, and had mouth cancer. Her oral hygiene is described as poor, and she's lost many of her teeth. As her causation experts, Flemings named her family physician and her primary dentist. Merck argued Flemings' experts were unqualified, and that she failed to prove that Fosamax caused her osteonecrosis of the jaw. Judge John F. Keenan said Fleming's cannot establish causation through her primary dentist because during a deposition he testified that he never formed a causation opinion. The testimony of Fleming's family physician was inadmissible, the judge said, because he testified that he knows very little about the link between Fosamax and osteonecrosis of the jaw. He's done no research on the link and cannot recall where he developed the knowledge to diagnose Fleming's injury. Fleming's trial was scheduled for January 12th. The first bellwether trial ended earlier this year in a hung jury and is scheduled to be retried. The Second Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals has held that work by loan underwriters employed by J.P. Morgan Chase and Company concerns the production of loans, not management policies or general business operations. The Second Circuit said that J.P. Morgan Chase owes the underwriters overtime finding the underwriters are not exempt employees under the Fair Labor Standards Act. The Second Circuit reversed a Western District of New York ruling explaining the underwriters' primary duty was to sell loan products under the detailed directions of the credit guide. There's no indication that underwriters were expected to advise customers as to what loan products best met their needs and abilities. It said the underwriter's job as it was performed at Chase falls under the category of production rather than of administrative work. They were not at the heart of the company's business operations. Insurance brokerage giant Marsha McLennan Companies announced in November that it had reached an agreement for $400 million to settle a consolidated class action filed in 2004 over alleged securities law violations made in connection with an alleged illegal bid rigging scheme. A class of investors represented by lead plaintiffs, Ohio Public Employees Retirement System, State Teachers Retirement System of Ohio, The Ohio Bureau of Workers' Compensation and the State of New Jersey Department of the Treasury filed a consolidated class alleging Marsha McClendon improperly steered clients to particular insurance carriers to maximize the contingent commission payments from those carriers. They also alleged the company concealed the true nature and magnitude of these payments from clients and investors and therefore artificially inflated the price of its stock. The numerous class actions that were filed were consolidated in early 2005, According to the stipulation and agreement of settlement, the parties agreed to settle the action just as they had completed marriage discovery and were beginning expert depositions. The settlement is subject to a final approval hearing. In a press release, Marsha McLennan said about $205 million of the settlement was paid by insurance. The remainder, the company said, will be paid by cash on hand. The amended settlement of the controversial Google Library Project case was preliminarily approved by a New York federal judge in November who set a February date for a final fairness hearing and established deadlines for notification, opt-out decisions, and other events. Southern District of New York Judge Denny Chin signed the preliminary approval order less than a week after the author and publisher subclasses in the case filed the amended settlement agreement. He set February 18th as the fairness hearing date. The Authors Guild filed a class action against Google for copyright infringement of the project, which would digitize many written works and make them available online. A second class complaint was filed a month later by a group of publishers. After a first proposed settlement was preliminarily approved a year ago, the court received hundreds of objections from parties concerned that the original settlement agreement would not adequately represent their interests or protect their copyrighted works. The amended agreement, which was submitted to the court on November 13th, narrowed the scope of potential class members to just those that hold rights in works registered with the U.S. Copyright Office by January 5, 2009, or published in the United States, Canada, the U.K., or Australia by that same date. The amended agreement also went on to more narrowly defined terms, such as book and commercially available. A woman whose identity as a CIA operative was revealed to the world in July 2003, failed to show the Second Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals how the agency violated her First Amendment rights by barring her from writing in her memoir about her pre-2002 service.
2: After retiring from the CIA and in accordance with the terms of the secrecy agreement she signed when she joined, Wilson submitted the memoir she was working on to the CIA's Publication Review Board. The board disapproved publication of her manuscript as written, based on linking statements and events with a specific time prior to 2001. The CIA had only publicly admitted Wilson's employment from 2002 on. In May 2007, Wilson and Simon & Schuster sued the CIA, its director, and the Director of National Intelligence, seeking an injunction preventing the agency and others from barring publication of portions of Wilson's memoir and a declaration that doing so would violate her First Amendment rights. Southern District of New York Judge Barbara Jones ruled for the defendants, finding that Wilson's pre-2002 service dates were classified information. Affirming Judge Jones's ruling, the Second Circuit concluded that Wilson's disclosure of the information presently censored by the CIA would do more than reveal dates of service. It would, quote, facilitate the identification of particular intelligence sources and methods, thereby compromising the agency's ability to use such sources and methods in the future. Still quoting, that the CIA views these risks as real and substantial is demonstrated by the significant actions already taken by the agency and described in the classified submission. In sum, the CIA has advanced good reason to maintain any pre-1002 agency service by Ms. Wilson as classified and to prevent the inclusion of such information in her memoir." For LexisNexis Legal News, I'm Michael Lefkowitz.
0: A New York appeals panel in November reversed a trial court judgment and annulled the town's determination that a site plan review was required before a fence could be built on a married couple's property and held that the municipality's determination was inconsistent with the clear language of its local code. Craig and Lynn Emerling planned to build a fence on their property in the town of Richmond, New York. The town's zoning board of appeals determined that before the Emerlings could receive a permit to build their proposed fence, the town of Richmond planning board would need to perform a site plan review. The Emmerlings challenged that determination in the Ontario County Supreme Court, which dismissed the couple's petition. But the appellate division found the Zoning Board of Appeals' determination that site plan review was required prior to the erection of a fence is contrary to the town's zoning law. The panel pointed out that Richmond's code requires the preparation of a site plan prior to the issuance of a zoning permit, except for single-family residences, accessory buildings or uses, and agricultural buildings or uses. A plaintiff won partial summary judgment and a permanent injunction on November 12th when a New York federal judge found that the Road Dogs trademark is not generic. The plaintiffs, the Road Dogs Motorcycle Club of the United States, New York Road Dogs Motorcycle Club, and Massachusetts Road Dogs sued defendant Q's Road Dogs, alleging the name Q's Road Dogs infringes on the plaintiffs' rights as the registrants of the trademark Road Dogs for use in connection with a law enforcement-only motorcycle club. The lawsuit alleges the plaintiffs never authorized the defendant's use, and that use is likely to cause a appreciable number of consumers to be confused as to the origin and affiliation of the defendant. According to Northern District of New York Judge Glenn Sotheby, the trademark at the heart of the dispute between the plaintiffs is suggestive in nature. Furthermore, the plaintiffs prevailed following an analysis of the Polaroid factors with regard to likelihood of confusion, and as such, they're entitled to summary judgment, according to the judge. The judge permanently barred the defendants from using the accused Road Dogs trademark or any confusingly similar name that includes the words Road Dogs. For further information on these and other New York cases, visit wwwlexisnexiscom slash or totallitigator.com. LexisNexis Legal News, New York, written by the editors of Mealy Publications, current and targeted legal news and litigation reports. The LexisNexis New York Legal News Podcast, copyright 2009 by LexisNexis, a division of Reed Elsevier Incorporated. LexisNexis, total practice solutions. This is Steve Bursler. Thank you for listening.